millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome back to Headstrong and Innings With. You're listening with me, Louis Strong, the host of this show. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of people in the public eye and I sit down and have a chat with them about their lives and their careers. But notably, I want to talk to them about their vulnerabilities and learn what the word headstrong means to them through all their experiences. This series is entirely devoted to cricket and we are very proud to be supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation who are a magnificent charity. Some more information on the charity later on but if you would like to donate £10 please text RSF10 to 70191. This series is also sponsored by the fantastic McGill and Partners and Ascot Group. Thank you for your support. Now, on this bonus episode of Headstrong, I have the England World Cup winner, Liam Plunkett. I sat down with Liam very recently to have a little bit of a chat about how he was dealt with and managed following the World Cup, and also just to talk to him about his experiences throughout his career. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. Liam, thank you so much for joining me on Headstrong. How are you, sir? Very good, thanks, mate. Uh, nice to be able to play some cricket outside. The weather's been nice down south, so no complaints. Yeah, where do I find you at the moment then? Currently, I just came back from uh, an injury. Uh, I damaged uh, my shoulder towards the back end of last year. So I'm just currently playing, uh, well, trying to play some red ball cricket, trying to build up to then be so ready for selection for the first team. Uh, obviously, all the exciting stuff starts, the T20 stuff starts in a maybe six weeks so i saw you had a run around for the uh the second team how, how how did it how did the body stand up i was a little bit a bit sore to be honest with you mate so it's the first time i've bowled probably more than 20 overs in uh in innings for a very long time but uh obviously you need to get back in in rhythm into some good form 
obviously the, the Surrey team is very strong at the minute. There's a lot of young good uh, young balls coming through. But, but also in that uh, second team, it's nice to be sort of like a mentor role, uh, speak to the youngsters coming through. I, I, I do enjoy that. And I do see myself going down that avenue once my career, uh, sort of once my skills are, go down the drain a little bit. With that last year that we have had, I mean, in terms of the lack of cricket in some regard and the long winter, not necessarily, obviously you've come back from injury, but you must be feeling somewhat slightly rested having not played that much cricket, although you're now having to find that rhythm and build it up again. Is that right? Yeah, it's a sort of like two different sort of types of people. I remember playing with Fred and Steve Harmison. Fred looked like he didn't have to play for a year, then come back and bought nine miles an hour and hit it straight on the spot, where Harmy took a while to get to build back up. He needed to bowl overs, and that's sort of the way I'm sort of built, really. I need to play a lot of cricket. It's nice to feel rested. You feel fresh, but it's also nice to have that uh, in your legs, the overs in your belt, the training overs, and also then pre-season overs. I feel better a couple of months in when I've actually done some hard work and the, and the body just sort of, sort of the ball in action just takes care of itself. How important is preparation for you and getting your body in top physical condition? Because I know that you won't mind, mind, mind me saying, and indeed you said it yourself there, that you, know, you are one of the senior members of the squad now, which is great uh, in terms of the mentor side of things. But do you have to get your body into a routine and kind of put in the yards over the winter to kind of get that prep ready for your body for the season? Yeah, I think cricket now is a lot of athletes coming through. Gone of the days where people had beers at lunchtime and tea time. Uh, you can look around now, the IPL, international cricket, even first-class cricket, T20. There's so many athletes now. And that's a lot of hard work in the winters, starting pretty much the month after the season finishes. The guys are going to be in, obviously not this winter because of the COVID stuff, but the guys are normally in Monday through Fridays in the winter time doing S&C sort of skills. And it's only that cricket sort of creeps in towards Christmas and after Christmas. But yeah, as you're getting older, my problem is the S&C that the coaches sort of need to pull the reins on me because I like to train and I've always done that. So just say this week, for instance, I got out and I want to go for a run and I try to do that and I felt so in my cast because I bought 30 overs a day before. So I'm that spectrum where I need to get the reins pulled on me. Otherwise, you're going to go to overtraining and then get injured. So some people are good at just looking after your body, knowing your body. I just sometimes think I can still do what I did when I was 25 and obviously now I'm 36. So it's more cricket focus, more cricket sort of fitness. So you're still doing a couple of times a week strength and conditioning, but you're sort of in and out, uh, like high intensity, high weight, but low reps, rather than going into blast the gym and then being sore for actual cricket specific training. I mean, you're a big fan of fitness yourself, aren't you? I mean, have you found that difficult and challenging as your, you know, you, your body kind of not being able to keep up with the way that you want to train? Is that frustrating or actually just part of the parcel? As you said, part of the parcel. Still as fit as ever, but you just need yeah. to rest, rest more than you can actually uh, train. So before, you just need to give yourself a couple of full days off because all your effort needs to go in bowling the ball. I think what I should have learned back in the day is I'm not paid to be the best runner or crossfitter. I'm actually paid <laughs> to bowl a cricket ball and hit the ball out the ground. So I always think I wish I, I took that on board a few years back. But also I look at it and think, well, the way I've trained has also led me down the path of being successful in, in, in what I do. So I feel like I like to do the hard yards in cricket. I'm like the one who run into the wind or do the tough overs. And I guess all that s kind of stuff has helped me with that. 
So where, which came first then, your love for cricket or your love of sport and fitness? Uh, cricket. My, uh, my dad was a good amateur cricketer uh, in the Middlesbrough Leagues. So as, as a kid going along, like a lot of cricketers playing, I was watching my dad since I was walking, I guess, three, four years old, remember being at that cricket ground. So my love for cricket, yeah, before anything else. And at what point did kind of being part of that team and being part of a cricket community really fit into your life when you were growing up? Always been part of it, but I mean, I was always playing with all the kids on the sidelines with tennis balls and stuff. So I guess I was always testing myself with the older kids and I guess you, you keep evolving quicker than the guys your age. Uh, I mean, I played... At the, the start of it, I think when I was eight years old and I went to, along to a game and they were one short for a third team. So I played the men's team when I was eight. And I think from then that that sort of... I mean, you about putting bit, yourself in the deep end. Yeah, and I think that sort of... The feeling of being a little bit scared, intimidating is something I sort of thrive with. And from then on, I always played early. So then you played Middlesbrough first team when you're maybe 12 or 13 and sort of from then really I enjoyed sort of testing myself against better opposition and my, my dad was a really good cricket coach uh, so yeah it was part of our family my mum did the tees did the scoring my sister played cricket so it was a very family oriented sport was there ever a, a the chance that your sister was gonna take it as a career at one point, she she was a good left arm of a, a bowler, but I think she was a bit scared of the balls as a batter. To be honest with you, I'm not sure she played. She was she was decent, but I'm not sure she would have excelled and played in it. But I, I just don't know. It's you go in different uh, avenues in your life, and she went a different direction, and she she's happy with with kids. So she just was, lived through me a little bit. From a personal perspective, it was very useful having a sister who knew how to bowl a cricket ball in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> can't complain yeah I th- no it was a little bit like that but I guess for me I was always playing with the older kids trying to get people bowling bounces out of my head and stuff like that so it was nice to be in the firing line totally now when did it become a reality for you then because it, it, from what you well from what I know about you and from what you you've told me already it's very much been a part of your family but when did it become a reality that it could be a profession uh, I'm not too sure. I played Cleveland County, which is a small county, uh, sort of in between Durham and Yorkshire for a lot of people. I don't think it exists anymore now. It's like Teesside area. But playing under 13s, <clears throat> it was either going to go to Durham or you're going to go to Yorkshire. When I played under 13, did really well, like county level, did well against the Durhams and, and the Yorkshires. And I think when I sort of got picked up under 15s to go along and do... Uh, the Durham Academy and also the Yorkshire Academy and I found myself I was performing quite well maybe when I was 15 16 then I got brought into the Durham Academy and realized you can get paid to play cricket and I didn't really think about that until then I was maybe 15 16 and that's sort of oh this is this is cool like I'm getting paid to, to play cricket so yeah 16 years old and as you say there you you started your career with Durham now how does that pathway into professional cricket compare to what you see today? At, you know, with the introductions of franchise cricket all over the world, as well as the variety of formats of the game here in the UK, how do you kind of reflect on you starting out and seeing, you know, the likes of Ollie Pope and Sam Curran coming through and having that, you know, opportunity in almost 10 times the scale? 
Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky. Durham Academy has produced so many good cricketers. If you look at Mark Wood, Ben Stokes, and then the Harmisons and the Onions and all these guys who've played international cricket. So I was treated as a professional pretty much from the age of 16. Jeff Cook was a, a really good coach, one of uh, a good guy, old school. So it made you go for runs, make you just bowl and bowl and bowl. So I guess a little bit of the old school was still there as long as, as well as the new, new school came in. Mm. But I think now the guys at a young age, and if you're performing, you can go play in the IPL, you can go play in the Big Bash, and you get to play in front of huge crowds. So when you come and play international cricket, you've sort of been there. A bit like the Indian kids that are playing the IPL every, every week in front of huge crowds. And then when they play for India, it's, it's obviously passion. You're playing for your, for your jersey, for your, for, your t- for your country, but you've played in front of that situation, in front of uh, international bowlers or batters, and you sort of just fit in nicely. And I think it's a bit like that with our English guys. And uh, yeah, I still obviously loved the way that I was brought into the game. And it was old school clash with a new school. So I guess it's always like that though, right? Everything's always evolving. People who come in now in 10 years time will think this is old school. So Oh, completely. And I think what you had, I would suggest, is probably the best of both worlds. And that's what you want, really. Because you're learning from the, the guys, the old school guys, but then getting that real opportunity. And, and hey, presto, here we are with the career that you've had. This series is brought to you by two magnificent sponsors, Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. Ascot Group is a global speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of property and casualty solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda, and the United States. Ascot is a long-standing supporter of charities with a link to sport, including ongoing sponsorship of the Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby Club. With a recent increase in mental health awareness, the company is particularly proud to support Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sports. McGill and Partners is a boutique insurance broker helping corporate clients find specialist solutions for their most challenging and complex risks. Growing rapidly since its launch in 2019, the company operates in the UK, Europe and the United States and prides itself on working with some of the biggest companies in the world. And you can find out more on their website, mcgillpartners.com. McGill and Partners understands high performance and the mental health challenges that can be associated with it, regardless of the industry people are working in. The company is fully committed to their employees' well-being and are delighted to be sponsoring the Headstrong podcast series. It is also delighted to support the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Thank you to these two wonderful sponsors. One thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, well, there's many things that I want to talk to you about, but one of the things I want to talk to you about is... um, spending time in and out of a cricket team and notably England. So you, 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 you made it into the England team and throughout kind of a period of 10, 15 years, you found yourself in, out and on the periphery. How does that affect you as a player? And then how does that affect you as a person? I think the, the latter part of my career was different in terms of I felt like I was a part of that team and I felt like I could turn up and perform and help the team win. In the early stages, everything was so new. 
Uh, you sort of rely on your talent a little bit. You still do the hard work and stuff, but I guess I was just happy to make the numbers up when I was first introduced to England cricket. I was like, I can't believe I'm playing with Flintoff, Harmson, Kevin Peterson. They just won the Ashes. And then I went on the following tour a few months later to Pakistan. And I guess you just sat with your, your heroes and like, this is amazing. If I just play a couple of games, I'll be happy. The thing when you play so young, like a lot of people do find out, is if you start making mistakes or you start struggling bowling wide or you're not going, it, it's just put on TV, isn't it? Like you see with one of my friends, Gary Ballant, a little bit, he nearly averages 40 in test cricket and he made a few mistakes and all of a sudden the media are all over him. And he's like, oh, he's not ready for test cricket. He's got how many hundreds? So it, you put in in spotlight, really. And I found that kind of tough. And when I obviously got released from England the first time, when was I sort of, I know, early 20s, maybe 24. And then you put so much pressure on yourself to go back to county cricket and, and you say to yourself, well, I should be getting five wickets. I should be getting quick runs because I've been playing for England and it doesn't work like that. If you're struggling international, you can still go back and struggle first class because the players are good. So, I mean, I didn't find it the early stages too tough because I was just happy to be a part of it, even if it was in and out. I think towards the later part where I sort of felt like I deserve to be in this team, I feel like I'm performing and then you get left out. You feel, what else can I do to get back in that team? That's frustrating. But the last four or five years, I felt like I was a solid part of that. And that sort of felt like my team. I didn't really, I had my county team, but the closest people out were like uh, my teammates for the England team. That felt like a really tight knit team and probably one of the reasons why we became number one and obviously went on to win the World Cup. Yeah, completely. Now in those first few years before we, we will talk about the world cup because i couldn't possibly not um but in those early years then of playing england cricket then as you say you were young and i imagine that you were kind of taking on advice from all over the place because mm-hmm. of you know crit- it's just difficult at a young age to deal with criticism and i'm not saying that you you were um receiving a lot of criticism but at a young age you do take it personally how did you manage to learn to deal with that and indeed learn to be in the spotlight from an early age uh i think you don't i think sometimes i don't know back in that culture a little bit you went out had a few beers a little bit and i've done a lot of stupid stuff by probably drinking too much back as a youngster uh and I think that sometimes to get away from it. And when you're a youngster, you like that attention. So you might also go out to get a little bit of attention and you realize it's, yeah, it's not really, I don't know. It's just, do you know what I mean? It's your young lad, like it's yeah. still your ego a little bit, but also it's to get away from the game. If you, if you have been struggling, if you're not performing the, you, the way you want to perform, like some people go to work to an office job, they want to go and have a few drinks to clear your head. But as a sportsman, you know, if you go out and have a night out, then the next week you can get injured, you dehydrate and end up pulling the hammy. And that's sometimes what I did earlier in my career. So I don't know. I think it's sort of when I sort of changed the way I thought about the game later on that it, it was a lot better. But it was tough as a youngster. It is. But I also in, enjoyed that time. You learn about yourself. You learn about how you come back, the bounce back ability to call it and you need to keep learning and keep evolving. Otherwise, you're not going to be a first-class cricketer. You're not going to play for England again. So it's taking the blows and then coming back and learn from, learning from them and putting them into action. Who was your partner in crime in those early days? In Durham, I think everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's so many guys. But it was we had such good teams that like you'd win, have a couple of beers, you go out, you win. But 
also the guys trained hard. I mean, it was one of them he did go over a few beers. I ended up going for a six mile run in the morning and training. But uh, I'm I'm saying this is like it's after a game you'd won, not like during the game. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> But it's just an easy thing if you've got time off to go out and just try and forget about like the pressures of the game and why am I not playing for England? I wonder if people still sort of know who you are at that point and do anyone give a shit? So, well, you've got to find that balance of at the end of the day, as you say, it is a job and your life shouldn't be defined by cricket. I mean, you're still a human being. You still want to have relationships mm-hmm. and friendships and you can't define yourself by your job. Yeah, 100%. I've used the sports psychologist quite a lot. And when I was going through some, when I first moved to Yorkshire, I struggled towards the back end of my uh, Durham career. When I moved to, moved to Yorkshire, and I remember speaking to a sports psychologist, and it was the same. You can still be a, a good husband, a good son, brother. Uh, cricket obviously doesn't define you. Just because you get smacked around the, the ground that day doesn't make you a bad bloke. Or, but sometimes you feel like that, especially if you were the old school coach. Because they might not speak to you. And you got to realise you can't take it personally. you got to just like, all right, I'm going to leave this and come back tomorrow. But yeah, it's, it doesn't make you a bad person. You're right. It just, it's just a game. It's just a job at the end of the day. And sometimes you forget that. Totally. Now, as you said there, you have in your time spoken to sports psychologists and medical professionals in, in that regard. And Headstrong is very much rooted in, in talking about mental health and anxieties. And I'm, it's great to have you all on because I know that you are very in touch with your own mental health and, and your past experiences. And yeah. you've previously spoken about your anxiety. And I, I just wanted to, for anyone who doesn't know about your past experiences, I was, I was wondering if you could briefly touch on that that first episode um, when you were traveling and just explain what, what you experienced and what you went through? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it might have been, we had a bit of time off uh, and I think I had a few beers all night and then the next day I was trying to jump on a, a plane to US where my wife is. Back then I've seen my girlfriend and I got on the plane, I was fine and then all of a sudden I was sat next to a guy chatting, I started sweating, and which is fine, it is what it is, I thought I was a bit hungover. And then all of a sudden I was just drenched, drenched through, which it's obviously embarrassing. And all of a sudden I started, uh, it's sort of a weird feeling if you're not having anxiety or struggle with it. I sort of, uh, you start panicking and you think it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Not the flight, it was the fact, I don't know, I could, I was like, what's going on here? Like, why am I feeling like this? So before I took off, I managed to jump off that flight, uh, calm down. I, I tried to see the doctor to see what's going on. And he was just saying it was, I think it could have been a panic attack. So I went home for a few days and rearranged my flight, but I didn't want to get on uh, from the same place, which is Newcastle. I was going Newcastle, Heathrow, Heathrow, Philadelphia. So I just cut out the short haul leg and I was just going to get a train to London, London, Philly. So I jumped on a train and same again. End up uh, sort of like this panicking feeling, uh, sweating, struggling, end up calling my mom just for a chat. Managed to get on the long haul flight, get across and sort of didn't really think about it for a while. so I look after myself, uh, gym, eat clean, do all the right things. And so I didn't really think about it too much. And it sort of then started to creep in. I couldn't really get into a taxi. Uh, I struggled to get on a train. I would stress about doing something like this. I would like get myself panicky for it. Uh, and then it sort of, yeah, it crept in over a time. And it was, it, it was tough actually, because I'm a fairly an outgoing person. I'm not trying to be the center of attention, but I can have a laugh and, I don't get embarrassed. I'll, I'll speak to people openly. And that sort of disappeared. And I, some days I would lock myself in the, 
in my room for a few days in the dark. I would struggle to, yeah, I'd find it really hard to meet someone, to meet my friends for a coffee or a drink, whatever. And yeah, sort of put myself into the fitness side of stuff and started doing a bit of meditating and sort of put myself into cricket. And that's when I came through with Yorkshire when I started looking after myself and then I got to play for England again after that. So it's, it was a tough period. And I still know now there's certain things that trigger me. There's certain things that I could easily get anxiety and I wouldn't want to leave the room. So I know what that is and I know how to sort of give myself time and what things to put in place to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, as I said, you are tremendously in tune with it. What are your kind of, what were, well, first of all, actually, what, what did you start to put in place to, to manage that? Because there's, there's a difference between putting something in place and then maintaining that level, isn't there? So what was that kind of, kind of turning point, so to speak, where you were like, right, I actually now need to action something here because I can't go on like this? Yeah, obviously, because I've related to the drinking side before. It's like, I can go six months without it. But I think because I got on that flight and I was hung over a little bit, that's sort of, sort of my trigger. So if I've got something planned coming up, like I'm not going to go out tonight, if I've got something planned tomorrow, I need to make sure I've got plenty of time to do it. So hence in the cricket season, uh, during the World Cup last year, even to, to this year, to some extent, I just have time, I just don't do it. So the things I'll, I'll, I'll do put in place is just make sure I, I meditate quite a lot. I'm trying to eat clean, look after myself. And I know that if I'm doing this, so you must have, you've come across Headspace, right? You, yes, I was uh, about to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a bit like having a net. You need to practice. You need to have a cricket net. I guess if your viewers don't know sort of the cricket terminology, is just practicing, right? Before a game, you'll have a practice and groove your ball in action, your batting, uh, your batting technique. And a bit like uh, meditation with that, I try and do sort of little bits here, little bits there, and then sort of, sort of just be aware of myself, aware of how I'm feeling, what I need to do, I need to rest a little bit. and. Yeah, that's that's a that's been a huge part of the, the the meditation and a bit of yoga, that kind of stuff. Now, Headspace is fantastic. Do you do anything else then to focus the mind as well? Because uh, meditation is fantastic. Is there anything else that you practice? I do that through yoga as well. I guess you can get into a med- meditation sort of state. Uh, do you do I it with Joss? Take, he, he's doing a lot of Pilates with his wife, right? Yeah. Uh, but she obviously it was a, in lockdown that it sort of kicked really went well for her so i have managed obviously i'm not involved with just too much now so it's uh i know that they're big into it but i do enjoy it when i can yoga and stuff like that and try and take time out maybe a little bit reading read more than i used to try to put myself in a bit more like the study inside just get away from it get away from uh if i'm feeling a bit like the anxiety building up and stuff now a moment that comes to mind for me um, and I am sure that you have talked about it before is as a cricket player, you build up and train for years and years and years, you know, in any sport, I suppose. And you train for that moment for that ultimate success, you know, be that an Olympic medalist going for that, you know, 10 seconds in the hundred meters or whatever. And then for you guys, it was those four years all into that world cup and mm-hmm. we won it and it was incredible and you celebrate and you have an amazing time, but then it's over how 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 do, how do you find that was it anticlimactic or was it actually a constant climax because you did have some immense celebrations meeting the prime minister and going on on celebratory tours and things like that but what was that balance like after winning the world cup because of course the moments of elation were there but then the mm-hmm. moments after are often not talked about 
I find it a little bit tricky because you're playing at that the highest, the, the elite level against the best teams in the world to win the World Cup. And it was only a few days because the guys had to get ready to play against Ireland at Lords. And it just felt like a blink of an eye. I was sat on my sofa and my underpants watching Netflix. And it was just like, this is crazy how quick that's gone. I think I gave myself maybe a week. And then I was playing T20 for Surrey in front of a packed out crowd. Probably one of the best, it's obviously one of the best venues to play at with the biggest crowd against Middlesex. And then I was just real foggy. I got a bit of anxiety at that time, but I wouldn't sort of say this, but it, I got a beamer against uh, one of their lads that broke my thumb. And that gave me a few weeks off. And Surrey were, were kind enough to let me go to America to see my wife. And I sort of had a few weeks chilling out. And then when I came back, I was sort of went back into it. So it was initially that time off just to, to relax a little bit, take it easy, just enjoy just the day-to-day stuff again of being with my wife, going out for a coffee and sort of setting new goals. I did a good thing. I sat down with the psychologist, Andrea, at Surrey, and we sort of put that to bed about what I'd learned, what, what we're going to move on to and sort of writing things down like that sort of gave me a new perspective, perspective going forward. And I think I needed that just to see that on paper to say, all right, okay, what I've learned you, you can't live like you won the World Cup. That's great. But what else can you go on to do now? You might not be winning the World Cup, but what can you achieve? Can you hit goals? And what are your goals? So, so are you goal-driven then? So have you got a new set of goals now? You've obviously achieved that immense success back in 2019. Is there a new 2021 goals? For me, this year it was to make myself available to play all formats for uh, Surrey, uh, to help the youngsters come through, but also not, help them come through just to play ahead of me like they need to push me out of the way because I'm still trying to perform at my best also so it's yeah I, I just want to learn to to be around Surrey because they've given me a, a good few years where I've not been around too much because of the World Cup and the, the pandemic which is it is what it is but they've been really supportive so it's I want to make myself available and make Surrey feel like a, a home club to me because as I said it's been I've not been uh, based here for too long and it's, I've been here three years so it's the first time I've sort of put myself in an accommodation for the six months. Now, you did obviously play an enormous role in that World Cup win. I, I mean, arguably pivotal and, and part of the foundation of that team, as you say, the backbone and the structure of filling those middle overs and p- putting in your performances. If you had to choose three words to describe your emotions, what would you use? After the World Cup? Yes. Hmm. It's put me on the spot that uh, I think there's many more I could say, I guess. <laughs> Go for uh, it. Fire away as much as you want. I was just trying to think of a different way to kind of articulate a question yeah, I mean, that's not been asked to you before. It's, it's so, I don't know. It was emotional, which is the first one. I think you're exhilarated, emotional. I think you just, you just can't believe that that's happened because you have stuff like, oh, to win the World Cup and you can, you can win this. And we had such a good team. And it just didn't feel real until like a day later. So it was just emotional, joyful. I was so excited about the, the whole situation. I was excited and, and pleased for everybody. So it wasn't just for myself. I was obviously happy my family were there. I was over the moon there, could watch that and be part of that. Because so, sometimes I felt I've not been, I've played in the bigger games and I might have missed out on a game, not being selected, but it was nice to 
play in that final and they could see that all the hard work I've put in, all the, the miles they've driven, all the flights people have taken and they finally get to watch the Sun play in the in World Cup final and, and do well. So like I've played in World Cup finals before, but I've not been, I've just been there. Like I maybe got one wicket, but obviously in that game, I felt I played a crucial part. So it's nice to, to, to have that feeling and be proud. I was sort of proud of myself for, I mean that it was what a, what a day that was. I remember that was one of the times I remember the time and the place and where I was. It was epic. What a day! Um, but following that huge success, I mean, I can only express my disappointment in the way that you personally were handled. I obviously don't know the ins and outs of it. I don't know anything, and I only ever read the read 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 what I read. And of course, pundits are there to give their opinions and that's the very reason to start conversation but you were left out of the squad when invited to return to training following the pandemic or during the pandemic now with that mature reflection and hindsight you you have that ability to say i understand now what, what was going on with the um bringing it bringing in the young lads and whatever but as you say from everything that you're bringing to the surrey second 11 right now for example the baton that you're able to pass over. Did you feel that this was just um, poorly managed or, or what, what, are, what are your kind of further thoughts on this? Because I know that you've talked about it before, but you've now got the opportunity yeah. to reflect on it further down the line. Yeah, I can see where they were going. It was just the way it was done. I mean, I found out on Twitter that I wasn't going to South Africa. So it was like, well, surely they can give me a call and, it was just the way it was done. I thought it was shit, to be honest with you, mate. So if someone actually called me and said, listen, I've been realistic. I think we're going to go with the youngsters and thanks for everything you've done. Not like they need to say thanks, but obviously you represent your country, but just the way it was dealt with. No one really made a call a little bit. And then uh, and then I got a call in ice uh, when the England squad played in the bubble. They had two I think it was like 40-man squad. Then I got a phone call, which is a year later, off Ed Smith saying, mate, you're not in this squad. And I was like, well, it's pretty much late now. You could have called me a year ago. It was, it sort of sailed by. It was no need to call. Do you know what I mean? So it was just the way it was dealt with. I can see where they were going and I want people to come and do well. When I watch now, I'll I probably watch more international cricket now that I'm not a part of it. And I want people going and take fifers and smash winning runs. Like that's what I want to see. So it was just obviously disappointing because I still felt I could perform at that level. You don't lose it overnight. Like I don't go up and play and perform in the World Cup to blink of an eye, then I can't do it. But I do see the way they were going. I just felt like it could have been dealt with better. Did it give you kind of more motivation to kind of put in more effort to consider a recall? Or was it actually like you thought it was a line under the kind of uh, at the bottom of the page? How did it kind of make you approach your game? I think for me, I've always been, whether I play for a village team or the academy or a first team or international, I approach it the same every single time. I'm just, I'm very fortunate that that's just the way I look at things. Uh, so I didn't really need to change because it's still the same. I still mark my run up and ball at who's ever's batting there. I didn't feel like I need to, to do that. Yeah, as I said, it was just frustrating because you feel like you know you can perform at that level. You know you can perform just as good as people are playing there, if not better, but also... I knew that that was it. Even when I didn't get picked for South Africa, I think that was the first, or was it New Zealand? Whichever was first, I knew that I wouldn't play again. I just, it was just like, well, this is the way it's gone. Uh, disappointing, but as I said, it was the way it was dealt with, not the sort of decision. I was disappointed, but all right, we'll go with youngsters, but just be, all right, you're not, you're not going to be sort of picked going well, forward. It was just a matter of respect that was lacking. 
almost. And I think that they've done that before with people, right? Speaking to people who've not played again and not really been had the communication. And I think that's all you want is good, clear communication, black and white. And that's just the way that, I don't know, I deal with it better. If someone tells me that was shit, then yeah, all right, I'll go and work on it. If someone says it was good, all right, thanks. You get a slap in the back and you go on with your day. Exactly. Now, as you, as we said there, you are with, you're with Surrey at the moment, but I, I do believe it is, is your contract end at the end of this year? Yeah. But that's, I mean, who, who knows what will happen there? But of course, We've got some exciting cricket to play this summer, but what does the future hold once cricket is over for you? As in, not, I'm not saying it's happening at the end of this year by any stretch, but when, when cricket does um, finish, are we looking, are we going down the coaching route? Because I know that you have expressed a lot of interest down that route before. Mm-hmm. And obviously the way that you talk about kind of giving back to cricket and giving back to the youngsters as well is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've played a lot of cricket, a lot of good quality cricket with some good coaches and some good captains. And I feel like I've picked up a lot along the way. I'll try and play until I, the day I turn up and feel in my mind I can't take a fifer or help win a game, then I'll continue playing for whoever, whoever that may be. Obviously, Surrey's one of the best teams in the county, if not the best county. So we'll see what this says. And as I said, you need to put yourself into what can I do in the future? You need to start putting things into place. That's why you do your coaching badges, your strength and conditioning badges to, to give yourselves plenty of tools to, to go at a, a new career or as I said, but I think I definitely will be involved in cricket going forward. Have there been uh, any developments in, on the uh, other side of the pond in terms of cricket? <laughs> <laughs> I bet that question Apparently. followed you around. <laughs> uh, apparently. Yeah. I mean, I've got, uh, I'm ambassador for the Philadelphians, which is a minor league currently. Uh, but, so obviously I'm with Surrey. That's my priority. Uh, with the Philadelphians now, one of the minor league teams, I've had a few coaching sessions with them and trying to help them out. Hopefully, I think going forward, my wife's happiest in America. That's where she's from. I love America. Uh, so I think cricket is going to pick up the eventually. I think with the money that's been invested and the major leagues coming up in a year or two. So I think, I will go down that route, but you never know. You never know what opportunities pop up here. If someone likes you here or somewhere else and you get something offered, then you need to weigh up your your opportunities. And, and I guess that's what I'm, I'm doing right now. I'll play until the wheels fall off, but obviously learn in the meantime and try and put that to good use. Absolutely. Now, this is a question I ask everybody. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Headstrong, I think, as I sort of mentioned before, is be comfortable with yourself and your decisions that you make that's how I, I would feel it so it doesn't need to be always stubborn a little bit someone like real headstrong someone can say he's real real headstrong he's like just opinionated to himself and stuff but mine's just being comfortable with whatever decision you make and having clarity very nice i really like that well look, i really really appreciate you coming onto the podcast thank you so much and i wish you all the best for this summer and we'll maybe long continue to see you in a sorry shirt Sounds good, mate. Good to chat. We are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with Headstrong and Innings With. Sir Andrew Strauss lost his wife to non-smoking lung cancer in 2018. Just before her death, Ruth and Andrew discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help other families who would be facing a similar ordeal. The Ruth Strauss Foundation wants to ensure that all families with dependent children facing the death of a parent are offered emotional support and guidance to prepare for the future, allowing them 
to make the most of their time together. In tandem, they are driving the need for more research and collaboration in the fight against non-smoking lung cancers, which are on the rise and to which Ruth ultimately lost her life. You can support their cause by making a donation today. To donate, text RSF10 to 70191 to donate £10. Or you can donate online at virginmoneygiving.com forward slash fund forward slash headstrong forward slash RSF. Thank you for all your support of Headstrong and the Ruth Strauss Foundation. And that's it for this bonus episode of Headstrong with Liam Plunkett. I'd like to thank Liam very much for joining me on Headstrong and also a thank you to Gus Atkinson for helping facilitate the podcast. If you'd like to donate £10 to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, please text RSF10 to 70191. There is also a Just Giving page in the biography to this podcast. Every little helps and it is a wonderful, wonderful charity that needs your help following this pandemic. Thank you to you, the listener, for tuning into the podcast. I really appreciate every single person that listens to this podcast. And I hope that you have found the conversation interesting, engaging, and inspiring. But most importantly, I hope you understand what the word headstrong means. And if you don't, I will see you next week with another guest. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.